Hi, Luna. Hi, Mom. Welcome to our second episode of the You Hear Big Girls podcast. I'm Mom Taku. I'm best known from Tumblr, where I've been blogging about this series since 2014. And I'm Luna, but I'm better known as Wings of Moonlit Night on Reddit, where I upload everything related to the quote-unquote unofficial chapter poll. So this month, Luna and I are delighted to have Levi's Skinny Jeans as our first guest. Those of you on the Tumblr side of the fandom may remember LSJ, since their blog is still a popular resource for interviews, translations, and fandom news. Levi's Skinny Jeans, welcome. Hello. Most people know me as LSJ. I was a translator and fan, uh, news fan blogger on Tumblr for about three years, and I've been uh, in fandom on and off for about five years. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. Absolutely. You're somebody that I have admired for a very long time, so it's nice to finally meet you. Uh, the feeling is mutual. So chapter 109 was called Guides, and something I've appreciated is how Isayama always works the chapter titles into several of the story plots. The primary guide in this chapter, of course, is when Kaya recounts how she was guided to safety by Sasha. But in this chapter, we also learn about how Mikasa unintentionally guided Louise into the Survey Corps. And we also discover from Pixis that it was Flock who guided Yelena to Aaron and apparently helped with the mission to Liberio. Yeah, so let's start with the the first scene of uh, chapter 109, which was Falco and Gabby arriving at the blouse stables. So what did you think of them uh, ending up at Sasha's house? I was a little disappointed. I had wanted them to show up at Historia's farm, but surprise, surprise, it's one and the same. So <laughs> I thought that was uh, something I just was not expecting to see the Blouse family show up in this capacity as like a government subsidized orphan horse farm or whatever the you know <laughs> the designation is. So something else that um, I don't know if it was just an aside or if it was actually a plot point, but early on when Papa Blouse starts talking, uh, Gabby says uh, or takes note of the fact that he speaks with what she called a Southern Marleyan accent. And she looks really surprised by that. So I'm super curious about whether or not that was just a moment that was thrown in so that Gabby you know, sees these people as her people or if this is significant. And I was curious what you guys think. So now we have this idea that the the people on the island might not be pure Eldian. So we might actually have more of a mix of cultures and ethnicities than we originally thought. So the Marlinians hate the Eldians, but the people on the island could actually be part, um, part Marlinian. Even Sasha might be part Merlinian, and we would, that's something that we'll never find out because, I mean, as far as we know, as long as you're part Eldian, you can still be turned into a Titan, isn't that right? Yeah, because uh, Reiner is half Marlinian, and he's still able to turn into a Titan. So I felt like that was just, that was interesting, that mixture of cultures. Hmm. I wonder, though, if when she said, I mean, does Gabby consider herself Marleyan? When she said Southern Marleyan accent, did she mean like an Eldian from the southern part of Marley or did she mean an actual Marleyan? I think it's just a typical accent in that region. And mm-hmm. mm, I'm, I kind of think maybe um, it's from Eldians in the ghetto. Maybe they also lived in Southern Marley or maybe uh, who knows back like a hundred years, people were, you know, the Eldians were still suppressing the Marleyans, right? And the rest of the world, according to the stories that we know now. So maybe they all lived together at one point in the same area. And um, as we know quite often that uh, when one 
people conquer another. They do first their own language and their style of speaking and their culture on them. So I wonder if one people force the other to speak the same language, which is also why the Eldians and Merlians share the same language at this point in time. I was something I was also thinking. It, I feel like it's it's kind of it kind of parallels what happens in real life. For example, um, the current Southern draw in the United States is actually a slowed down version of the high British accent that uh, used to exist in England. So, I, so I think it's kind of funny when, when you take that in consideration. Um, Sasha, who is always made fun of for the bumpkin way she, she was speaking, actually has something, if we, if we keep that in mind, like closer to like an aristocratic or possibly aristocratic accent to, to Marley, at least. I mean, it's a possibility. That's a really cool point. I hadn't considered that. I like that a lot, that here she's been made fun of this accent, but actually the more pure of the accents. Yeah, it's also kind of funny because she tried to change her way of speaking, as you all recall. She was trying to be all proper and decent in her way of speaking. And to your, and I, I bet you to to the government, she probably she probably would have been speaking speaking in the most proper way, or at least if she, if she were in Marlin. You know what I also thought was cute? I, I'm a Texan, so I'm very used to accents, and I thought the accents here were were portrayed very. They're very cute. I love Mr. Bross's breakfast. Breakfast. I just wonder if this is actually going to be a plot point or if it's just, um, you know, just something interesting in the text. For now, I think it's just going to be something interesting that might lead to some revelation at, later on. But I don't think the uh, revelation will be very important. It's more like, oh, we all used to live together kind of thing. Yeah, I'm on that train of thought as well. Yeah, just interesting. Interesting he gave a panel to that. So uh, any other points in Breakfast at the Blouses that you all found interesting? Well, I don't know if it's interesting per se, but I really like Sasha's mom, Lisa. Like, Gabby is, like, completely shook during the entire breakfast. She doesn't want to be there. And, you know, uh, Lisa tries to comfort her, and she just hits her hand away. And instead of being shocked or upset, um, she empathizes with Gabby and, you know, thinks she must have been through something very rough. And, you know, that's very nice to see that they're quite decent people that they've ended up with. Yeah, Sasha came from good people. Yeah, she really did. In the chapter poll, we asked about, because we did, we got three newly named characters in this chapter. We got Lisa, mm. Blouse, Kaya, and Louise. And uh, I was a little sad that Lisa only got, what, 3% of the vote, 4% of the vote for best new character. Kaya definitely um, was the landslide winner in that poll. Mm. I voted for Lisa for what it's worth. <laughs> I voted for Lisa too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's go from extremely lovely people to extremely terrible people. What do you think about seeing Zachley and Kiyomi together? I had hoped that he slipped and died in a poop machine accident. So seeing him <laughs> as head of state was, um, I won't say it's unexpected, but I was a little disappointed I, to have him back. But then again, you know, snakes on a boat or snakes on a plane or whatever works for me. I, I thought I was very amused by how well they got along with each other. I also feel like they're both trying to outsnake each other somehow. I definitely feel like that plane isn't just for surveillance purposes only. The fact that it was covered just feels like there's something more to it. 
It's still amazing to me that, you know, the talk last chapter or two chapters ago, Zeke's plan was that there's no way parodies could have the technology they need to survive in the world for 50 years. And here they've developed the world's first flying boat. So it's making me side eye Zeke's estimate more so than I was before. No, but it's not the first one, I think. It said first. No, it's the first one that's powered by the iceberg stone. That's true, too. So that's more like an engine thing than an actual building yeah. a plane. If we can trust the translation, the exact words were, yes, I believe it is the world's first flying boat made possible by the use of iceberg stones it flew as fuel. So it does seem like this is some kind of a new technology. I mean, my reading of it, because is that it's a new technology never before seen, which, you know, really speaks to either the power of the iceberg stones or else ingenuity of Hizuru or else Paradis. I, I'm having a little trouble telling, you know, who developed it. I guess it was a joint effort. I think it's um, Hizuru's because they were given the iceberg stone and they are using it. But they're, mm -hmm. they're showcasing what they managed to do with it. And then they're like, okay, we're just going to use it for its surveying. Uh, I kind of feel like it's uh, parodies because we've already had these hints that Armin's family was working on flying machines. And we have in Lost Girls where they actually build somewhat of a working plane. So I feel like it's possible to Parisi on the draw inspiration from there or to easily say, well, we got, we're building on the information from those people. I like that. So maybe this was one of Armin's side projects or something that uh, he contributed to or his family's research. That would be very cool, actually. I, I was thinking that this is like Isayama being a boy with his toys and wanting to create some cool new technology. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how can I work this into the story? I, I'm still of the hope that it crashes into the sea with Zackley and Kiyomi on board. But um, a very lovely honeymoon. Yes, yes, yes. They deserve each other. Yeah, their whole conversation is so sleazy. Like everything about the way that they are um, speaking. I mean, it's all very, you can tell they are professionals. They are absolutely professionals at not saying what they mean, uh, you know, speaking between the lines and just being generally sleazy and schmoozy. So um, I guess it was a great scene mm -hmm. to have them together. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, personally, the less I see exactly the better, <laughs> honestly. I wonder if his... Um, art show will ever be a part of the manga. I wonder if he ever went public with that. Oh, God, let's hope not, because then the anime will... Oh, I don't want to see that animated. They're going to make it ten times worse. Wasn't it already animated and they made, like... I haven't seen the anime and I haven't even seen uh, season two of the anime, but from what I heard um, on Twitter was that there was, like, extra noises and, like... Yeah, they made exactly it worse. Exactly jerked his hands like uh, yeah it's stop, stop. Yeah, yeah 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 let's change the subject um <laughs> yes. yes where let's are we go from hmm. one shit to the next let's talk about yes Klo. please <laughs> well <laughs> let's talk about hanji first because poor hanji man that scene with the journalists all over her case some people view this as her, you know, when, when uh, Flegel says, you know, look in my eyes and tell me that you're still the person I think you are, that you're still holding on to the beliefs, you know, that her answer to him did not satisfy a lot of people. To me, it did. Mm. To me, she looks him in the eye and assures him this is for humanity. But I'm amazed at the number of people who disagree with that, who think that Hanji is behaving exactly as her predecessors. Well, in a way, they also... <laughs> 
I mean, part of them also thought that what they were doing was best for humanity, right? Or at least for humanity within the walls. I mean, they were also looking out for themselves more than maybe like the population per se at times. But yeah, she's being very quiet. And of course, she has her reasons to be. But it doesn't work that well when first you're going to be like the person who changes everything and makes all the information known to the public. And then you're closing everything off and pulling up a wall between you and the journalists. It doesn't quite work. I kind of feel like Hanji has the worst job on the planet, and it's not even a job that they wanted. It's something that they were forced. This is a position that they were forced into. I feel largely why Paradise is in such such experiencing so many problems is because no one was really prepared to take on this type of government structure. So so when Erwin entrusted Hanji to be the commander of the Servant Corps. It was as it existed before. The the Servant Corps is now no longer used as this scouting uh, scouting regiment. Essentially, they're an actual part of the government, and Hanji is not is no longer acting as a commander. They are acting as a politician, and that's not something that Hanji excels at. I feel like that's something that would have been more up at Irwin's alley. That's, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like. I feel like Erwin really should have prepared them more for for this eventuality, but I don't, he didn't have the time, so. And this is something completely off topic, but I've often wondered, Erwin was never the kind of person to leave things to chance. He's the 4D chess player who has the next 30 moves planned out. When he appointed Hanji as commander, she had no idea. She was not prepared for this. She was as shocked as everyone. But I have to wonder if, you know, Survey Corps had lost so many people prior to that moment. Maybe Mike was his person he'd planned, or maybe someone like Deed and S. Maybe mm. because of the exposition, ex, expedition with the female Titan where so many of them died, maybe the person that he, or the one, two, three people that he had intentioned for this role, you know, unexpectedly died. And so Hanji, I feel like if, if he had always intended for it to be Hanji, he would have prepared her for it. And it would have been something that did not come as a complete shock. Yeah, I just don't think like, um, you know, the highest ranking people that are still left in the Survey Corps, which are Levi and Hanji, they're just both not well equipped enough to be the leader of the Survey Corps. And I still think they should have brought in someone from the outside to lead them. Someone like Pixis, I think. Oh, I think Pixis might have been the best person to, to take care of parodies in this current situation. But I kind of feel like regardless of what happened, Erwin would have chosen Hanji as his successor yeah. because Hanji, they, they have a, they have an amazing relationship. Hanji has shown um, to be an adequate, more than adequate commander when they're on the actual field. The issue is what happened afterwards. Um, Erwin had some idea of what would happen, but I don't think he could have foresaw what happened, what is happening currently in the, what's currently happening to Paradisi at the moment. And we also have Erwin um, back in Uprising. He's he showing regret, or, or at least thinking back on whether or not this is the right choice, overthrowing the entire government. And even he seemed kind of, kind of lost in, in how they were going to proceed from there. So, so I feel like it's not. I feel like it's not Hanji's fault. Hanji's doing the best they can with the um, very little preparation they were given and put in the role that they were forced, essentially forced into. 
I also want to mention that there's not, I feel like there's not enough blame on Levy put on, put on Levy for this because he's the one who's essentially put Hanchi in this position because of 84, even though I agreed with, um, with his decision or, well, I, I felt that it was very touching that he decided to save Irwin from the hell that was the SNK world. Um, you can still criticize the fact that he's essentially left everything on Hanji's shoulders and still hasn't helped, hasn't really helped them at all. Yeah, it's a position Hanji never wanted. And now they're stuck in this position. I also think that there's not enough blame being given to, I mean, Hanji is a cog in the wheel and a, a cog in the military structure. They aren't the only commander. They aren't the head of state. They are a piece of it. And yet all the blame is going on Hanji for this. Looking at, again, the chapter poll this month, we ask, is Hanji doing a good job as commander? And the majority of votes are neutral on this topic. It does sort of lean to, yes, she's doing good. Yes, they're doing good. In fact, very few people strongly disagreed with the statement, but it's a, it's a thing where a lot of the fandom is on the fence about this. But I agree with you, LSJ. I don't think anyone, I don't even think Irwin, I mean, it, it's just such a, it's a playing field that nobody expected to play on. The rules are different. There's no handbook. And Hanji's yeah. just been, you know, thrust into this role. Well, the thing is, I think now with the Survey Corps, they are full of people who, you know, at the end of the return to Shiganshina arc, all acted very selfishly, which also kind of disillusioned Floch, because really, he really thought that they were out to save humanity and they have humanity's best interests in mind. But then in that, you know, those couple of moments, um, they didn't act accordingly. And that's why I think someone like Pixis, who does seem like that kind of person who puts humanity, you know, in favor of before his own needs and desires, that he would be a better leader right now for the Survey Corps. And he also knows how to play the political game better than anyone else, I think. I think Hanji's poker face is pretty good. I mean, the handling mm -hmm. of the journalist was, you know, exactly what somebody accustomed to that sort of environment would do, you know, deferring questions to the MPs, you know, to the people who were responsible. I'll have to say that I'm a little worried about what's going to happen to Hanji in the recent, in the upcoming chapters. The last, the last shot that we see of Hanji um, when she's closing, when, they, when they're closing the gates on the journalist is Hanji surrounded by bars. Visually, I feel like that has a lot of impact. And this entire chapter, we've been seeing these images of Hanji in bars or um, putting people in prison. Actually, I think I think it, there's there's something of an irony there, and that that's something that could possibly happen to Hanji in the future. Absolutely. I mean, the the symbolism in the chapter. I think there was a post on Tumblr about it that I reblogged. That everything is done to sort of show Hanji isolated behind bars. Uh, it's to create a sense of discomfort. And that's why that last panel of Hanji looking at the reader, mm. you know, in the eye and saying, no, there's more to learn and standing up and moving forward. That panel gave me a lot of hope. It's been very frustrating and uncomfortable as somebody who loves Hanji to watch them enduring this. So I'm hoping that that's a positive sign. So speaking of someone being in jail, uh, after Hanji left the journalists, she faced off with Flock and his co-conspirators. And I think that was a highlight for a lot of people, seeing uh, this kind of showdown between these two different ideologies, I guess. Uh, what did you guys think? Well, when we first got the chapter without the translation, like in Korean, I thought, oh, um, I wonder what they're 
why have they been jailed? I had no idea. I thought maybe it had to do with, you know, just purely their ideology of wanting to create a new Eldian empire. But then I found out it was just for giving away um, details about Eren's current location. And I was a bit surprised. I wonder about that. She Hanji's words were, you're the ones who leaked information about yeah. Eren. Was that to the journalists or was yeah. that to Yelena or both? Probably both. I have to say this. I was kind of, I was really happy that that Flock and Co were seen as as these types of extremists, and that the the Eldian Empire, the idea of the Eldian Empire, was quickly admonished by Kanji. This was something I was super curious from a fandom perspective: whether or not people agreed with Flock that Aaron did nothing wrong, Aaron mm-hmm. should be freed, Aaron is the salvation to parodies. So again, on the chapter poll, we asked the question: Flock speaks the truth, and uh, you know whether people agree or strongly how strongly they agree or disagree with that statement. And um, it has been surprisingly split down the middle. Yeah, I mean, I think the people who think that. Block speaks the truth are just a slight minority in the fandom. It looks like it's almost a 50-50 split with people who agree with this. Yeah, this is like the most uh, statistically normal divide that I've ever seen in the, the questions we've uh, polled so far. It's definitely right up there. I mean, this is something that people are very polarized about. Whether or not you see Aaron as the salvation of Paradise, or if you think he's on taking people in the wrong direction is something that you know definitely has people divided. To go back to something that Luna stated, um, I'm glad that you brought this up earlier, but I like how Isayama has shown the effects of the insubordination from 84. It's kind of cracked into the, the central foundation of the Survey Corps. No one's really sure who can who they can trust. Even in the panel where, where the meeting's going on, there are people whispering in the background about whether or not what Flock is saying has merit to it. I love how voice how Flock is always sort of the voice of a portion of the fandom. There's always some portion of the fandom that hears his voice and acknowledges it rings true to them. And so it is interesting to see the background characters sort of having that same moment. I kind of I know this is a really grim topic, but I feel like the group this group of Eldian Restorationist Part Two is kind of going to lead to the to the downfall of the current government as it stands right now. So, so I, I've had this. I've been throwing this idea around with a couple of friends, but my thoughts were essentially that if Hanji is taken down by somebody, or if um, they are they're killed in in the manga, it's going to be due to a human mob, and that might come from the Eldian restorationists. At this point, I wouldn't be surprised because we all know that the population right now has been fed limited information about what happened in Liberio. And, you know, they thought it, they think it's all one big victory for them that they're, you know, really turning things around. And, you know, now they're hearing these noises about like the big hero is being imprisoned. And maybe they also would like to restore their country um, back into this great empire opposed to, you know, like living their entire lives locked inside these walls. So and I think a lot of people are very displeased with Hanji at the moment. So I really hope it doesn't go there. But yeah, we'll see. I was reading back over the uh, signing event that Isayama did a few months ago. Uh, I think it was in March 2018. And there was a question asked about Flock about whether or not Flock had a very important role. And the follow-up question was that they asked specifically, 
do you mean in an underhanded way? And Isayama answered yes. So I was looking at the translator note on that. It says that the interviewer used the word missile for guessing Flock's future. The term is slang, generally used to mean cowardly and unethical. In the past, combat involved hands and swords using a missile would then be considered a cowardly move. So I think that that's, um, I mean, maybe that's a spoiler, but whatever Isayama has planned for Flock, it does sound like it's going to be, I mean, he's already admitted to being a coward. He's already admitted to, um, you know, those sorts of feelings. So it'll be real interesting to see what that important role is going to be. And if it is, if it involves hurting Hanji, I am going to go ballistic. (laughs) <laughs> I will be the missile at that point. I will nuke the manga. I will be furious. I hope it's not it. I hope I hope maybe this is maybe this is the underhanded role sneaking around behind Hanji's back and leaking information. Maybe this is what he was talking about. I hope it doesn't get any darker than this. No, oh, again, mom, wrong manga. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. Let me have my happy thoughts. I am holding my happy thoughts. <laughs> You know, I remember trans working with um, Yusenki um, staff on that particular translation. That was that was something that was a little difficult to get across. Um, we, we weren't even sure whether or not to include the actual context of that statement of what what missile in, in slang terms actually meant because we weren't sure if if that would um, change change the actual meaning of of, of the question. Well, I'm glad you guys included the missile point because I think it's it's so important that we understand the flavor of what he said. Clock is a type of person who brings a gun to a knife fight. <laughs> well, his words are definitely guns and knife fights. That's always I've always I, I've always I mean, well, Clock was my voice during Serum Ball. I, I he said things that I thought needed to be said, but again, it was a gun and a knife. He has no tact. It was. Um, more like a hand grenade in a, um, you know, knife fight. I mean, it's absolutely take no prisoners. He just drops these statements with no tact, you know, yeah. no, no consideration for how the recipients are going to take them. And I've always faulted him for that. But this time he's, he's speaking so ideologically opposed to what I think that I have burned my flock fan club membership part. He is dead to me. And if he hurts Hanji, yeah. I really liked him, you know, back at the end of Return to Shiganshina because... Yeah, he's very honest and straightforward and yeah, maybe a little bit without tact, but I think that's more something that he doesn't really know. It's not something that he does um, consciously. I don't think he's out to hurt people or just doesn't care how they feel. I I think he truly cared about Hitch and really wanted her to know about, uh, sorry, (laughs) Marlo's last moments, but yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I didn't get any bad energy from him at the time. I just, I think he was very disillusioned uh, about the entire Survey Corps and what happened out on the battlefield. And, you know, he just wanted to speak his mind about things. And yeah, as someone was also very direct and straightforward, I could appreciate that. But, you know, he's kind of gone overboard with it, you know, in the past four years. I kind of feel like <clears throat> Flock is like a warped version of Gene. Everything that Flock has said can essentially be put down as the arguments of the common man. What would be common Mm, say in this situation? Um, I believe most of them probably would have argued towards saving um, Irwin after learning after learning their history. There are many people who are currently experiencing a surge of nationalistic pride in their own country. So I feel like Flock is someone who's just 
he's essentially our warped mouthpiece for what a lot of people are probably saying in paradise. And he definitely believes what he's saying. I mean, that last panel of him walking away, you know, his fists are slightly clenched, shoulders back. He's completely proud of what he's done. And his statement that he will happily be imprisoned if that will lead humanity to victory within the walls. I mean, he's not messing around. He's not backing down. He absolutely believes that the rumbling, Aaron having the ability to capitalize on that power is the key to saving paradise. Yeah, I mean, and that's the attitude, like I said, of a lot of the fandom. A lot of the fandom absolutely agrees with that statement. Whereas Hanji, it might be a fairy tale. And I really do think when the rumbling happens, it's not going to be, you know, the panacea or the cure-all for Paradis' problems. I mean, those titans are facing inward. They are not facing outward. They are not there to protect the world or to protect Paradis. They are there to (laughs) destroy Paradis. Yeah. I've always been pro um, everybody dies ending, <laughs> um, even more so recently. But I feel like it, it'd be very difficult for them to get out of the situation they are currently. And Hanji cannot currently admonish Aaron as a government figure due to um, due to the very complicated situation between Hanji, the people, and Aaron. I feel like it would it would bring mass chaos essentially if. Hanji were to take Aaron down or to bring up those actions against Aaron. So I, I feel like it, it feel like everything's kind of going to implode in on itself. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're clearly aiming for something. I don't know. Catastrophic might be too harsh of a word, but it's definitely, everything is coming to a head. It's like, you can almost see the writing on the wall at this point about where this is heading and it's not good. It certainly isn't. And, um, I think it also, I think he, uh, Isayama intended, I think Isayama intended at the beginning when he started with the attack on Titan to not have this happy-go-lucky ending. But, you know, over time he has uh, adjusted his feelings on what he wants to do and how he wants to treat his fans. We'll see where it goes. I do think it won't be, I think it will be a bittersweet kind of ending where a lot of sacrifices will be made, but eventually they will be necessary to ensure a better future for everyone. And not just for the Pyridesian. So we asked in the poll, based on this panel, when it mm. comes to what's best for Paradise, who would you side with? Uh, team Flock, Team Hanj, or neither? And again, it's another, uh, the Rydans were almost a third of the, a third of the responses. Yeah. Uh, Hanji has a slight lead given those options, but neither uh, was second. So a lot of people realize that this is not as clear cut as we think. I mean, I'm team Hanji. I feel like, I, and maybe that's naive. Maybe I'm as naive as they are that mm-hmm. there's a place for diplomacy in the world, that the rumbling may not be salvation. But yeah, 20%, more than 20% believe that Block is speaking the truth, 30% neither. And then a gigantic number of write-ins. Yeah, a lot of people are like team Aaron or... Another team. They've they've aligned themselves, but not with Hanji or with Floch. Yeah, I don't know that we've ever had so many write-ins on a single question. I don't think so. So yeah, I'm team no one. Out of the two of them, I'm team no one. <laughs> I kind of feel like Isiana is trying to show um, that moderation is key. For example, um, in terms of diplomacy, Aaron acted too quickly and too harshly in attacking um, Marleyan people. Whereas in Hanji was being, I believe, a little too naive in what 
what was being done with the um, volunteers and their approach in diplomacy and trying to reach out the rest to the rest of the world. I feel like Hanji is closer and that diplomacy is what is needed. But on the other hand, Hanji also allowed an enemy's cook to make food for all of these, for all of their people. <laughs> yeah, that is not uh, the smartest move ever. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, that's going to come back to bite them. Yeah, we, we you talked about this last uh, podcast, but then I saw one of your posts. I, I we should discuss that because um, there was a bottle of wine when the hundred and four was gathering and talking about what they were going to do with Aaron. Yes, there are bottles of wine everywhere. So I feel relaxed when I see people drinking tea, but as soon as I see a bottle of wine, I'm now very concerned. Yeah, I mean, Jean, Jean mentioned the wine, I don't know how many times, at least two, maybe more, that the food and the drink have been extremely uh, popular with the Paradisians. It's, it's been mentioned over and over again to the point where it's a little... If the blouses are going to drink wine at the restaurant next chapter. Oh. I kind of feel like... If Nicola is the one doing it, I kind of feel like he's going to spare the Bross family because of his own personal feelings towards Sasha. He better. He better. I hope he does. Nicola did not look happy about that bottle of wine. I mean, he clearly wasn't smiling mm. and handing it off to the waiter. You know, it could be that he doesn't even know, or it could be that he suspects but isn't sure. I mean, there's no telling... Um, what his, uh, how complicit he is in this, but, um, I feel like he's totally complicit and he, he just seems very sinister. I loved it. I love this type of poisoner archetype. So Nicola is just like my favorite character in the entire manga right now. <laughs> well, he is a prisoner. He wasn't a volunteer. So if Zeke had been planning something, do you guys think that the prisoners would have been let in on that? No, I don't think anyone is in on what Zeke is planning. I think that Yelena is Zeke's number two. And, mm. you know, she gives people the information they need and, uh, it, it, and, and probably appeals to people using what appeals to them. You know, if Nicolo is against the poison wine, I mean, Yelena's brilliant. I'm sure she's appealed to him, you know, well, we won't use it unless we need to, we won't use it unless, you know, they won't release us. You know, she's probably floating the story in a way that's appealing to him. I don't see any innocent intentions out of him, but that's because I want him to be bad. <laughs> oh. Just let me have my poisoner. <laughs> you want him to be like the secret spy character that twirls his mustache at the end and pours a large glass of wine for Lisa Browse and yes, smiles as she drinks it. Okay. All right. We'll see that next chapter. I, I don't think he'll poison the Bross family, but I feel like he has been... He has been doing this for a very long period of time. And I feel like yeah. we are actually going to probably see Yule die in the next couple of chapters due to um, due to the wine. He's going to be transformed into a titan if it was titan serum or poisoned if it was actually poisoned. Yeah, well, I can't wait to see it happen. Well, then Zeke would have to escape and turn into a titan and do the roar, right? Yeah. I mean, so. but most people are planning, I, you know, next chapter, it, it, it not only closes the volume, it closes the arc. So if we don't have fireworks next chapter, I think people are going to be disgruntled. Yeah. I mean, this, this ends the arc. We had. I'm not sure where we are arc-wise. Is this like a transition volume? Um, are we already in the next arc? Is it still the end of the Marley arc? I, I think the next chapter definitely closes. Well, I can't say definitely, but according to the pattern that's held the last several years, 
the next chapter closes the volume and the arc, uh, unless he's breaking away from the 20 chapter arc format that he's had. Yeah. But um, it, it definitely better be a good closing chapter because the last four chapters have been very, very slow. Yeah, I'd like uh, some meat with my side dishes. And this is coming from a vegetarian. So... <laughs> I feel like these chapters are going to be better in retrospect because I I thought um, I'm, I'm not sure the chapter where Armin was narrating was one of the dullest chapters in the entire manga and it was mostly just because it was just completely explanation um, there was just so much conversation about food but then we had Nicola with the wine in 108 and that it just hits you like an anvil. Mm. Right. The implications right. of that. So I feel like that's probably going to what's going to happen with these chapters where it's all kind of quiet. And then you realize, oh, wait, damn, that if you remember the last chapters, oh, my God, something really big is going to happen. I think that's true, too. The whole series is going to be better in retrospect. And maybe that's true of every monthly manga. When you're when you're getting a story in this sort of slow drip format where once a month, you know, mm. you get the chapter, you have all month to hope and dream about what's coming next. And then, you know, of course, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to want things that don't happen yet. Um, but I know my friends who've joined the fandom recently and have been able to binge, you know, a hundred chapters at a time, absolutely love the series. They don't see the pacing issues that we do. They just really love the story. I think emotionally they lose a little bit, like Serum Bowl was not as profound to them. I mean, when you're living a monthly manga, it absolutely impacts you. You have all those quiet hours to think about what happened and for them really to... Yeah. So it, it'll be better in retrospect. I like the chapter. I know um, it's not been one of the most popular, but, you know, I think it covered a lot of ground or hmm, it introduced a lot of possibilities. So the other thing that we got in this chapter was the um, meeting with Louise and Mikasa. And I thought that was fantastic. That was absolutely fantastic. I mean, could this finally be the character development I've been hoping for for Mikasa? Where she stopped saying "Iden" every two seconds, <laughs> and from your mouth to Isayama's ears. Yes, please. exactly. <laughs> I've just been very excited for what's going on with Mikasa. This is something that I've always wanted for her, and it's 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 really interesting now that we're finally getting it. Yeah, I didn't think it would happen, but if he's going to continue with this, then I'm very very happy to see it. I um her telling Louise. What did she say? Did she say, shut up? Oh, keep your mouth closed. Mm, I mean, yeah. when I, again, my list of like badass SNK moments grows every chapter. That was to see her turn around and just be like, shut up. I loved it. And I like Louise. I feel for Louise. I mean, you know, this traumatic childhood event, that moment with Mikasa saluting the little girl and the little girl saluting back is my favorite Mikasa moment. Absolutely. Uh, when I did my favorite character moment series, it was the moment I picked because it was so powerful to see Mikasa give somebody, she's not the most emotive person. So to see her turn and salute that child, knowing that it would mean something to that child, that that child would take strength from it was amazing. And now to see the result though, the result is we've got this kid in the military with complete disregard for authority who values power and independence so so highly. And that salute at the end where she salutes Mikasa as she's walking away was just so beautifully done. I mean, what a beautiful panel. I wonder, because it was parallel, because the scene was paralleled with what 
Mikasa's views on Aaron, could you could you possibly say that how Louise um, absorbed the wrong things from Mikasa, Mikasa also absorbed the wrong message from Aaron as well? Interesting. I mean, maybe she's definitely, you know, having the flashback at that moment. I think Mikasa is reconsidering everything. She's, she's second guessing everything. Mm-hmm. She is. You know, I think Erin is kind of maybe her motivation to keep going and never give up, which is not a bad trait to have, I think. But Erin takes it to a whole new level and completely seems to disregard the people closest to him and their wishes and kind of has made his own path and he's just forging ahead. And uh, Well, Mika says, Mika said in chapter 101, I think it was 101, where she's, you know, heartbroken looking at him, telling him there's no going back mm, and begging yeah. him to come home. I mean, she's shook. She's absolutely shook. Yeah, she is. I, yeah, I don't, I didn't recall the panel um, as well from like where we, you know, find out about Mika's backstory. But if you see the amount of stab wounds Aaron put into that kidnapper, that's the sort of rage you normally only see when people have a personal vendetta against someone. So to see that in this like little eight-year-old child going absolutely crazy uh, and stabbing this man over and over and over again, it's 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 kind of frightening in a way. Not only that, I mean, I I, I think about that chapter quite a bit. I mean, this is an eight or nine-year-old child coming up with a mm. charade about being lost in the woods, going into a broom closet, making a javelin or a, you know, a, yeah. and just, I mean, this, this particular artwork is so amazing because you can actually see the number of stab wounds. And, you know, while he's doing it to be shouting obscenities, I mean, this is a kid, this is a, you know, the equivalent of like a third grader uh, wreaking yeah. this sort of havoc on a person. It's, um, I mean, it reminds me again, how very dark this story is. I feel like it's really important to show the furthest extreme that Aaron goes to fight to fight his enemies or that his enemies in his eyes are no longer considered to be human. I believe during during that scene didn't when he was stabbing stabbing the kidnapper, didn't he say that, that he wasn't even human anymore? And I feel like that's a lot of that's that's how Aaron often views his enemies, that they, they aren't human anymore. Um or at least he, at least it, it was. I feel like Aaron right. starting to realize that um, since going to Marley, that they are there are people on the other side. But that is that end result is definitely how he still sees his enemies, at least in my opinion. Yeah, maybe so. I really hope that um, I'm kind of in the camp with a lot of other people that hope next chapter Armin will have that talk with Aaron and we'll find out what he's actually thinking because the talk with Reiner, he absolutely acknowledged that these people are humans. They're not monsters, but that didn't stop him from body diving into a crowd of them. So what about Mikas's headache? Do you think it's important or is it just, I mean, is this going to be some Acker Asian? It's been recurring so often that it has to be something somewhat important. But for me, it's at this point, it's just something that happens to her when she recalls something very, um, very, yeah, distressing and something that had a great impact on her. And just like a psychosomatic symptom, she gets a headache. That's just my interpretation at this point. You know, I saw this post. I wasn't sure. I can't remember if it was on Tumblr or if it was on Twitter, but um, someone had uh, drawn the conclusion that she gets these headaches because it's, it's kind of from the memory when she was bonked on the head by the kidnapper. Like it's, it's kind of like um, psychosomatic um, 
So it's kind of it's kind of related to what you were saying, Luna, that um, she gets these headaches because it's it's like the first, I guess, action into her um, into her family being killed. There is a crack theory. I don't know if it's a crack theory. People might take it seriously that um, you know when this happens, this is. Um, the coordinate power or some, of course, she's not LD and she's this Acker Asian hybrid, but that it's some external force impacting her at those moments, whether it's the coordinate or paths, or I don't know what the theory is, but you know, I think, I think that that's kind of a fun crack theory. I, I don't know how much weight I put into it, but it would be interesting if it turns out to be, I don't want magic in this series per se, but if it is related to her biology or, or something, you know, I, I'd like to know the answer to that. I'd like to find out if it's just a headache or if it's blood magic. I actually wouldn't <laughs> mind if it was, if it was related to paths or, um, or the coordinate ability, mostly because I, I'm a very big fan of the time loop theory. I feel like the most probable ending for the series currently, as, as we currently stand. And that, that's just my opinion. I've never put much thought to what is causing Mikasa's headaches. It's kind of like Zeke. After a certain point, I've just kind of given up on thinking about it. And it's like, well, I'm just going to enjoy the ride. But if I had to, if I had to put some money down, I would, I would probably say something, something with Pats is going on, possibly. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, officially, she shouldn't be affected by them, but we just there's so little we know about Mikasa's unique biology that I guess anything is possible. So moving on, um, we're running out of time, so we should probably pick up the pace a little bit. But um, Pixis's conversation with Yelena was another great moment. It was nice to get confirmation of, you know, how Aaron was, uh, I guess, helped in the journey to Marley. And also, I've seen a lot of people in the fandom uh, recalling back Pixis's moment where he mentions that he wouldn't mind dying at the hand of a female Titan. And, you know, Yelena being over six foot tall certainly fits that bill. Do you guys think there's anything... Uh, going on with that moment there? I would be I mean very happy with that twist because I feel like I feel like everyone's been kind of like going, Oh, what beautiful female Titan will be the one who takes down Pixes from Annie to Peak and now we have Yelena um as a giant woman um in the ring now. Yeah, he basically opened it up and called her a beautiful woman. Well, you know, I am pleased to have an excuse to speak with a beautiful woman. He's um, he's kind of asking for it. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> I hope not. I really, really hope Pixis makes it to the end of this story. He's my he's one of the characters I've pegged as being somebody who lives to the end. So I hope that if he and Elena have it out, I would like Pixis to come on top. So we'll see. Hmm. You're going to, I know, I know, I'm too, this is wrong manga. I'm just going to say it, wrong manga. Okay. You and LSJ want everyone, you know, to die these horrible, painful deaths. And I'm, I want them all holding hands at the end. And Not everyone. You know, I just want Reiner to live. World. Yes. Well, we have our priorities. Yeah. So the, the chapter ended with this really extensive, how do, how do we word this? ideological battle. How did you guys take this final conversation between Kaya and Gabby? Because they are definitely talking about some real world issues. This has caused some upset in the Korean fandom. I, I'm not going to pretend to understand it. I, I don't know that much about history, but it's reignited some of the arguments about Isayama and about this manga and about the connection to it being propaganda, political propaganda. That's upsetting to some people. And a lot of people are pointing at this 
conversation with Gabby and Kaya as more evidence. LSJ, you actually are in the Asian communities. You're a translator and somebody who can read the message boards. What's your take on this? From um, what I've heard from friends in the Korean fandom, the fandom completely imploded overnight over whether or not what message they should be taking from the conversation between Kaya and Gabby. At first, a lot of the conversations near the conversations that we're having, that some of the some of the people who know their history a little better are having currently in the currently having in uh, Western fandom. So some some believe that you know is Isiyama a right wing nationalist? Is he making is he making these types of claims? Um, other people are saying, well, what does it matter? It's just a manga. And then I feel like the majority are just very disappointed um, by what was said that they're going to continue reading the manga and just see where it goes from here. So generally, um, let me, let me read um, Kaya's response and it gives some type of um, better explanation of, of why people are upset. So Kaya's response of, it doesn't make sense for you to apologize just because you were born in Marley. Um, that has a lot of unfortunate implications. And you think that Isima might be using his manga to make commentary on Japan. Through the through the through the the metaphor of paradise and Marley, with paradise being an analog for Japan, Isayama is essentially saying that modern Japan does not need to apologize for the atrocities that their ancestors did. And in the case of Japan, these events didn't happen thousands of years ago, or even a hundred years ago, like they did in Paradise. World War II was seventy years ago, and there are still people alive right now who are still suffering from the effects of that war. And then when you think of this idea, you still have to think, well, why should people have to apologize for what their ancestors did? And then even if you, you have to really think about what has and hasn't been done in the country. Um, Japan, in many people's eyes, hasn't given a sincere apology to Korea, China, or any of the other countries acknowledging their own war crimes, specifically even naming the people who are hurt. Japan is also known for severely revising and whitewashing their home history. So even if you feel like an apology is not necessary anymore, full acknowledgement of what happened has not been reached yet. So, Yeah, I think mo- mostly the problem seems to stem from, at this point, the acknowledgments of like an, ag- admitting the wrongdoings. And not necessarily as the people of Japan, but as the government of Japan taking... Um, responsibility of what happened in the past. I feel like Japan isn't doing enough to acknowledge, as you stated before, Luna, they're not doing enough to acknowledge what is going on. Um, even doing history, even doing research for this, for this episode, I was reading Japanese entries and articles versus American, um, American articles on certain events. Um, I read for the Nanking massacre, over 30,000 people were murdered. Um, during that battle, during that battle, and people were also severely mutilated and sexually assaulted um, in Japan. Yeah, it was, it was, it was something that's really horrible. And in Japan, there are a lot of people who stated that the numbers were grossly exaggerated, and that people who uh, people who stated that they were raped or assaulted during this battle are liars. That that never happened. There's also the fact of comfort women. And Gabby, Gabby's line actually reminded me of that. Women being forced to have children they didn't want. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a euphemism. Yeah. 
essentially, and, and Japan's own um, government does not want to acknowledge that this happened. There are people even in the, in the Japanese government right now who, who state that these women were willing prostitutes instead of women, Korean women, uh, Asian women who were essentially forced into sexual slavery for, for Japanese troops. And it wasn't, it wasn't a small thing. This was over 200,000 women. And this was authorized by the military, by the actual government. And so when you hear that Japan does not acknowledge these things and that Japan does not apologize properly for these things, you can see why people would be upset. Anyway, going back to, going back to, a, to the actual conversation at hand, um, when Gabby is stating that you stole away the cultures of other people, you forced them to have children they didn't want, you killed countless human beings, she is expressing the pain that many people in Korea, China, and other Asian countries feel in regards to their in regards to the past, um, and she's framed essentially as a crazy person. Yeah, I I'm torn on this. I mean, I could see it going one of two ways. I if it's in, if it's Ayama is clearly acknowledging, you know, by mentioning the children and by mention if he's clearly acknowledging that this debate exists, is he having children have this conversation? to kind of impress upon it that both sides of it are very oversimplified? Or is this a situation where he is trying to make Gabby look completely crazy and Kaya sympathetic? And I I think that, like you were mentioning before, some people are going to keep reading it. Maybe it's going to be a wait and see how much of that political message we're supposed to, you know, which character ultimately is the reasonable one. I mean, from what I gather, like, Gabby is supposed to look brainwashed and, you know, um, she needs to have her beliefs challenged in this case. So I definitely feel like he's trying to make her believe of what happened in the past and wanting to make the Pyrodesians atone for all their sins, look at something that is no longer necessary. And I do not think that you can hold people accountable for the um, acts that other committed. But I do feel like as, you know, a government of a people, you should take responsibility and you should also try to atone for your mistakes, you know, and I know that Germany um, has definitely done so. They have repeatedly stated what a horrible chapter the Second World War and before that was in their history. And they've also made repairs to the people that were wronged and to the survivors of their victims. And Japan has done no such thing. Also for like comfort women, that was also something that affected a lot of, well, not a lot of, hopefully, but definitely uh, some Dutch people because back then Indonesia was still a Dutch colony. And I still have a lot to say about like, because um, Korea was also colonized by Japan. And I know from my own country's history that that, of course, never went the way it should have and that we also definitely committed atrocities in Indonesia but nobody is trying to deny that those things happen nobody's trying to stick their head in the sands and say oh it wasn't as bad or it also brought Indonesia good things like Isayama said that the colonization of Korea also gave them a lot of benefits and that was just such a tone-deaf comment from him that still really really rubs me the wrong way And then in combination with this chapter really makes me question his uh, his morality at this point. But I feel like for all the things that there there are other nationalistic um, or even imperialistic ideas in the manga. I feel like um, chapter 88 with Kruger, um, where he's essentially saying there is no truth in the world. Um, All it takes is someone to claim 
that you're a devil or a god for it to be true and him stating him questioning the uh, 17th centuries of ethnic cleansing of the Marlians that really that really seemed very similar to arguments that people in Japan have that you know how do you know if all these crimes are true um you know how the Nanking death estimates are completely overblown th- those two ideas but for all for all these ideas that Isayama has, I feel like ultimately he's telling an anti-war narrative. In the same chapter that we have this kind of apologist argument with Kaya and Gabby, he also portrays the um, Eldian restorationist as extremist. Grisha is also seen wrong for the views that he's having, and Aaron, who has adopted Grisha's memory, does not really believe in the idea of an Eldian empire. He doesn't believe it like Grisha and Kruger did. I feel like Aaron is using nationalism to get what he wants. And I feel like that's extremely important commentary in an anti-war narrative, especially in these days um, where you see just like a lot of disinfected uh, or a lot of disenchanted, angry youth who don't have any real direction or just kind of like latching on to the next thing to, to be angry at. So I feel like Isayama is telling a war narrative. He's just being a little a little sloppy with it. He's, he's not giving it the care that it, it should be given. And I feel like, I, I really wish this was not Isayama's first story. I feel like this was a very ambitious story for someone who's writing their first time manga to write. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. It's interesting. I appreciate you bringing this up because like I said, I think it's something a lot of us in the Western family are just uh, fandom are really clueless about. Like we don't understand when, when I personally get uh, a non's telling me that SNK is Nazi propaganda, whatever. I, I, you know, I always dismiss it because I'm not aware of the history and I appreciate you being kind of balanced about it. Isayama is trying to be balanced in this regard. And of course, he's somebody who's grown up in his culture. Literature doesn't come in a political vacuum. It comes with all sorts of baggage. Going back to something you said earlier, Koreans aren't boycotting it at this point. They're reading it. They're angry about this, but they're still kind of at a wait and see about how ultimately the message is delivered. I think at this point, um, from what I understand, a lot of them got back on back on it after the Marley arc because they were they were understandably very upset um, with Isayama admitting that Dot Pixes was based off of Akiyama Yoshifuru and you know the rumors about his uh, private Twitter account. So a lot of them dropped it for a while, and I feel like there's there's more Korean fans who are invested in the manga now than they used to be and now it's to the point where like well we'll wait and see because there's there's definitely things that reflect that ECM is also trying to comment that, that these nationalistic views aren't a good thing either and meanwhile I'm just you know in my own world reading it um in America yeah, it's interesting to get that <laughs> I know that makes it even worse doesn't it I mean here you are talking about the Netherlands and and you know I think in America we're just so distanced from all of this Oh, um, and one last thing I wanted to mention, Mom. Um, when you when you said um, questions about Nazism and SNK, I kind of I, I feel bad for stating this, but I've never felt like Isayama or this manga has actually had any overtly um, Nazi-ish um, meanings or like pro-Nazism or anything in the manga. I feel like Isayama is using these symbols or these. Um, these images from history to talk about Japan 
And I, I can understand why this is very, very, this would be very controversial, especially. Um, well, I mean, part of me says yes, part of me says no. I don't think he's promoting Nazism at all, but he does have some very clear symbolism of Third Reich in his manga, especially like the, the uniforms the, um, the warriors wear. The first time I saw them, they made me very uncomfortable, very much so inspired by the Nazi uniforms. The, the yeah, I mean, you can't wear. deny yeah. You can't deny the inspirations there. But a lot of times, I think, and, and again, this is probably not handling it as well as he could have. He did that deliberately as a visual shortcut. So, you know, you see somebody living in internment camps wearing armbands and you immediately get that feeling, that understanding that this is an atrocity. This yeah. is something. This is this is prejudice. This is a government completely out of line. I mean, it's it's a visual shortcut to kind of telling a whole story without having to tell the story. Yeah. But again, is it in poor taste for some people? Absolutely. I mean, I have I have Jewish friends, some who still love the series and appreciate that he's uh, including that sort of symbolism. And then I have some that are just like done with it. So, or very uncomfortable. So... And I'm fine with that. If, if it makes people uncomfortable, you know, I think that we can respect that. It's hard seeing a chunk of your history represented in a way, especially when you don't know how it's going to end up or, or what the ultimate story is going to be. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you're kind of giving this information so that the rest of us can understand what's going on with this. I think since it was so deep, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about, um, I'd love to discuss briefly the charity zine that was recently leaked to Tumblr and Twitter. See you in a short while, guys. So welcome back, everyone. Right now, we want to talk about something completely different, namely the charity magazine. Mom, would you like to just tell us uh, what the charity magazine was? Yeah, absolutely. So apparently, there was an image leaked recently to both Twitter and Tumblr, some new artwork by Isayama featuring the vets and the 104th, just a really lovely modern AU uh type of illustration and doing some research into that, it was actually part of a charity zine to support flood relief in Japan. And I just wanted to, since that image has been so widely distributed, I think it would be a great opportunity just to mention it. I think on my Tumblr and also on the SNK news site, there are links to how to purchase that zine. It's only $8 US. I don't know what it would be in other currencies, but it's not just Isayama's art, but I think it features upwards of 30 mangakas doing art and all the proceeds are going to be going to the flood relief victims. So I just wanted to give that a shout out because I think it's something important and something fun. And especially since so many of us have seen the art, it would be nice if we would support it. Yeah, and we'll definitely leave a link below so you can purchase a magazine if you're interested. Okay, so since we've talked last, Luna, we've had four episodes of the anime, and I know mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of time to discuss it, but I think the biggest moment that was surprising to most people was that it was Mikasa telling Historia to punch Levi, and that worked for me. I actually really liked it. I think that Mikasa's relationship with Levi has kind of been well-documented. She, you know, calls him a runt. She's still a little... He's not her favorite person. So it coming from her to tell Historia to punch him, I thought it was actually like really great character development for her. It kind of 
was nice, especially since Mikasa and Historia had that moment in the cavern that has everyone so excited. It was just, a, I, I'm okay. I love Reeves. I love the moment in the manga, but I'm okay with it being Mikasa's now. What about you? I don't know. I, I liked her facial expression when she said it, but it came so out of nowhere that it was like, okay, what incentive does his and what incentive does Historia have to punch him in the face or punch him? I've, I've heard. I haven't watched the anime, but I heard that the scene where um, Levy threatens Historia was taken out of the anime. Was that true? Yeah, he Levi didn't manhandle Historia at all, so it's kind of weird. He kind of just said, "You have, yeah." Mm-hmm. So he just kind of said, you know, you have to become queen. And she was like, well, I'm not so sure. And everyone else was like, she doesn't want to. She doesn't have to. And then Historia was like, okay, no, I'll do it. And that was it. Yeah, it really does make Historia punching Levi Mikas's grudge and not Historia's. It changes everything. I'm glad the punch is still going to be there. It's such a cute manga moment. I mean, it changes nothing in the ultimate story. No. Uh, Something else that's really worked for me was Yuki Kaji's voice acting. I thought Aaron's voice acting has been out of this world amazing. I can't get over the talent that these people have, just how heartbreaking those moments were in the cavern. Yeah, he's extremely, extremely talented. And uh, well, you know that Aaron is not my favorite person in the manga at this moment. So I hope when we finally get to the Marley arc in the anime that his voice acting will be like um, the shining light in the darkness as far as Aaron is concerned. I'm kind of interested to see how he's going to do that sinister. Well, I kind of feel like Aaron's very sinister during the Marley arc. So I'm kind of wondering how his sinister voice is going to sound like. So I know Kaji Yuki does all of these... uh, Shonen heroes who certainly mm-hmm. don't do these types of sinister voices. I'm just kind of curious to see how he how he handles that. Mm, I have confidence in him. I think he could do it. I think he's very. I just felt really. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's okay. No, I think he's very talented. Uh, I couldn't help but feel sorry for Bryce Pappenbrook in the <laughs> English dub. There is no way. I feel, I mean, I can't, I usually don't, I'm not really picky about sub or dub. I like them both. There's no way I'm going to be able to listen to Bryce Pappenbrook do the um, the cavern scene. There's no, I might listen, I don't know, like, do I listen to it for comedic value? I mean, or <laughs> oh, maybe so not, I don't mean that. He's good. He's a good voice actor. I just don't see, I don't see anything topping what we've heard from the Japanese voice actors for this arc. It's been fantastic. It's been really good. And um, for me personally, I I wasn't very satisfied with the pacing of the manga. I thought it was too slow. But because they moved so quickly in the first couple of episodes in the anime, a lot of character development was kind of cut out. And that made Historia's transformation in the cavern kind of jarring to me. But also Eren's breakdown didn't resonate with me as well. But then, of course, you know, Yuki Kaji's uh, voice acting change that like he i was almost crying i yeah he sold it speaking of the cavern something i wanted to say was um again i don't watch the um i don't watch the anime but i saw that the coloring choice for aaron's crystal or aaron's armor was very strange i thought it would be something closer to reiner because on the actual serum vial that Aaron um, chomps on, it says armored brawn. So, yeah, they skipped over that in the anime. It just said armor. Oh, really? Well, and then his yeah. transformation looked way more like what we've seen from Warhammer Titan 
than anything yeah, Reiner's oh, done. Or like uh, any sp- uh, partial like hardening or even going yeah. into crystal. So it definitely looks more like that. And I also expected it to look very different, like more like the walls, I guess. Yeah, I was expecting like mm-hmm. gray or white or even like a sandy gold color, like how um, Reiner's plates look like. I was expecting some type of Reiner influence, but it wasn't there. No. It wasn't. But I still kind of wonder if, yeah. I mean, it was Irwin's eyes blue. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus. <laughs> I cannot take you anywhere. <laughs> I know. I know. I saw his name in my notes. Aww. Speaking of fangirling, I saw on my Twitter feed a lot of um, Yuri fans going crazy over Levy's Don show and the dramatic pause that there was before he said it. Oh, yes. Account me. I have the MP3 file of him saying gotcha. Oh and uh, Erwin's, I do. I do. And Erwin's intake of breath afterwards. It's like Dancho. Like, it's just great. Yeah, it's very sultry. It's, it's like, mm, Dancho. Dancho. <laughs> that moment. I, and I know, like, I know on the, um, edit, or no, the manga poll that you posted to Reddit, Luna, the, the comments were like, huh? People were so confused why Dancho was even on the poll, like why that even mattered. But that was such an important moment for some of us because it is the first yeah, time. For some for me, a small part me, of the shipping fandom, me. yes. No, no, no. It's it was such an important moment because it is it's the first time he's called Erwin Commander. It's the first time he's spoken respectfully. And also um, the last time you informed me. I didn't know the that. last time. He yeah, he's he Levi well. And LSJ knows this better than me. Levi, you know, his crass way of speaking isn't always picked up on. So I always saw that we need your opinion, Commander, moment. Kind of a welcome back. You know, Erwin could have ended up dead. This is their first time together after he was arrested and tortured. And it was kind of Levi very happily passing the reins back to Commander Smith. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's open to interpretation. No shipping goggles in place on that one at all. <laughs> but I know I, I'm actually really happy with the anime. I don't have high expectations ever for anime. It's, you know, it's like I always call it the Cliff Notes version of the manga. It's never going to have everything I want, but it's hit it's hit the right notes for me for the most part. I'm crying over character development too, but it's been beautiful and fun and I, I'm happy with it. I feel like a traitor to the fandom for saying that. Anything else about the manga? For the anime, right? Yeah, let's just go into questions. Are we going to do a musical interlude? Yeah, we can. You guys can do the Blues Clues meal time. You just got a letter. You just got a letter. <laughs> wonder who it's from. <laughs> I want to include this in the actual podcast. Can we not edit this out? It's me saying that you just got a letter. <laughs> Okay, so the deal is we got mail and it's, um, we'd asked people to send in comments and we actually got some. So I thought it would be nice if we read those aloud. I wanted to read Luna. You got the first message that we received. Oh, I did. <laughs> so very important question for Luna, Anon writes, when do you anticipate Isayama to show Reiner without pants since he's drawn him shirtless <laughs> recently? <laughs> Um, if I'm 
very lucky right before he dies. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've already gotten Pantless Reiner. Um, yeah, yeah, we did, but he was covered by a blanket. Doesn't so it doesn't really count, does oh, it? But, but we also have that colored paper that may or may not have been drawn by. Oh no, 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 no! We're not talking about that. This, no, no, no. <laughs> If you're is, talking um, about what I think you're talking about, you're disowned. And- <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> Can we mute her? Mute her. <laughs> no. Okay. We have never seen okay. Reiner pantless, ever. We're going ever. to uh, cancel you as our guest. <laughs> yes. Podcast canceled. We don't know you anymore. So. <laughs> we're going to have people writing and asking what we're talking about. I am not answering it. I, I'm not either. <laughs> I'm not right, if anyone would like to know, if any, can I tell your Twitter account? My public Twitter account is Bronze, Bronze of, Steel. of Steel. If anyone would like to know what LSJ is referring to, I do not plan on talking about it. So you'll have to talk to, uh, actually find LSJ on Twitter at Bronze of Steel. And she can share with you what it is she is so anxiously willing to share on the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so since that was my question, let me ask LSJ a question, because you also got an ask. So, to Levi's Skinny Jeans, how do you think the Japanese SNK fandom compares to the Western fandom? Is it calmer? Wilder? Are there similar conflicts? I would be very curious to know, because I'm still fairly new to fandom stuff, and I'd be interested in knowing if there are cultural differences in the way things are. Thank you. And they put a little heart emoji at yeah, the end. Aww, that's very sweet. I'm very happy that I got a question. Um, generally, I feel like the Japanese and Western fandoms are very similar. Um, well, I feel like Japanese fandom is generally more polite and more focused on the plot. But those would be the biggest differences, I would say, in um, Western and Japanese fandom. Um, a lot of the more popular characters in Japan are also the most popular characters in America and Europe, with, with a couple exceptions. Also, the same thing with ships and shipping wars. I feel like shipping wars aren't as bad in Japan, except except you shift Eri, Yuri, or Levihan, whereas in the shipping wars are even worse. And I, I personally say they're worse because their fights can actually affect things. For example, merchandising and poles. Um, I believe a lot of, um, just to give you an example, over the Dolph dolls, um, mm-hmm. there was a lot of sabotaging, like trying to sabotage each other. So, you know, who, who would get the, the doll actually made of Erwin or Levy or Erwin or Aaron? But Dolph ultimately decided to do both. But that, that's an example of it. And um, going back to some of the more popular, going back to the idea of popularity, um, there's some characters who are very popular in Japan or who are extremely unpopular in the West. For example, um, Bertolt is hated, absolutely detested in Western fandom. But he is absolutely beloved in Japan. He's, um, he's one of the most popular characters in the entire series, and his merchandise is known to sell out in minutes. I believe um, there was this little holiday Bertolt. I can't remember what holiday it was for, but he had a little drum and, and stuff. And his keychain sold out in 15 minutes. Oh, wow. I know wow. his merch is also priced more, yeah, at a higher price, right? It's more expensive to buy his stuff. Yes, Bertolt has really high resale values. So oh. his merchandise will sell at double or even triple what someone bought it for, and people will buy it. And that's crazy. 
That, mm. That's honestly crazy. And I love told, but he's not worth that much money. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and like characters who are very popular in the West, for example, like Armin and Reiner, they're like mid-tier popular characters in Japan. And Historia and Ymir actually have their popularities reversed. I feel like Historia is generally unpopular and recent developments might have hurt what the anime might have given her a boost. Whereas Ymir is a lot more esteemed than she is in Japan. And those are, those are just my general um, observations. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out is I feel like downer endings um, are more popular in Japan. Like the, the idea of a manga, the manga having a downer ending or an unhappy ending is more popular in Japan than it is in the West. Hmm. Oh, that's not encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that the Japanese, the J fandom actually has the ability to affect change on the manga. Um, Is it, and you probably don't know this, but my understanding is that Hobo Aaron was like not attractive enough for like maybe the, the super, super hot man bun Aaron, uh, was because the fandom was unhappy with how Aaron looked as a greasy hobo? I will honestly, I'll be honest here. Um, I check Isayama's, the comments on Isayama's blog uh, pretty often, and you will actually see some of the more honest and brutal comments on the manga on Isayama's blogs. People will just put down their opinions in every single, every single entry that he had until until um, Aaron changed his looks. There's always something about Aaron needs to change his looks. Aaron isn't handsome enough. Handsome enough. It's like, what did you do to Aaron? It's like, why does he look so greasy? And like just comment, <laughs> comments along that line. Like they were very upset. So I, I kind of personally feel like the change in Aaron's looks was because of, because of fan pushback. I, I kind of feel that way because I honestly feel like Isayama could have shown Aaron as like a greasy hobo for the rest of the manga and it would have worked so, uh, symbolically. Yeah, right. and, it, would have, mm-hmm. it would have reflected his mental state. Mm-hmm. I think his editor also said that he w- wasn't, he shouldn't draw Aaron with his beard and all nasty, like, you know, he should look pretty. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Isayama was like, no, I'm going to draw him like a hobo. I'm going to do that. But then, yeah, I wonder if he backtracked after he saw the fandom response. He was like, hmm. There goes all my merch cash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know many, many people in the fandom are absolutely grateful to the J fandom for pushing back on Hobo Aaron (laughs) and giving us hot man bun Aaron. No, he looks like a 12-year-old girl now. He looks like Gabby. Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Now you're going to get hate. Now you're going to get hate on. Where's the lie, though? Where is the lie? Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) They look like siblings, honestly. (laughs) Gabby and... Aaron, if you didn't tell me they weren't related, I would have said they were. They're so similar personality-wise as well. I know people disagree with that you as guys, well. Yeah, you guys are going to get hate mail. I'm telling you. It's okay. I'm, I'm used to Don't it. talk about it. Gotta <laughs> <Not> be honest. <laughs> So lastly, we received a lovely, lovely email from another Anon, and I would just like to read it and thank this person. Anonymous asked, hello, I just finished listening to the first episode of your podcast, and I wanted to let you ladies know that it was awesome. Insert smiley face. I greatly enjoyed listening to your thoughts and theories on SNK, and I'm so glad you're planning on doing it every month. Can't wait for the next one. I'm sure there will be lots of interesting things to discuss given the build-up present of the previous chapters and also how much action there's going to be in the upcoming anime episodes. So 
Thank oh, you. That is so sweet. That was very sweet. Thank you so much. I would like to say um, as well, like the feedback we got on the first episode we published was so good. It really surprised me in a very pleasant way because I really didn't expect such an overwhelmingly positive response. So to anyone who listened, thank you. Yes, to anyone who listened and left a comment, whether it was on YouTube or Reddit or Tumblr, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. I was also very touched with the reaction. So thank you. Thank you, Anon. And thank you, everyone. Okay, so thank you for listening to our second podcast. And uh, yeah, I also like to thank LSJ for be willing to, uh, to join us for this one. Oh, I was very happy to be here. Good to hear. So we'll be back next month with Chapter 1010, and we'll have another special guest on. And I wanted to mention, too, that even though our podcast is called You Hear Big Girls, we are not opposed to having male guests. <laughs> no, absolutely um, not. I... I, I I was talking to one of my um, one of the male redditors about it, and he he kind of assumed that this would be an all female podcast, but that's not the case. Luna and I are the big girls, and we are very open to having big boys on the broadcast as well. <laughs> or short, it's fine. <laughs> Levi is welcome to join us. Short boys are fine. We got this. So thank you for offering your hearts and your ears, and until next time, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 This is going to be a running gag, I swear to God. Oh!